You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the thing that's going to solve the Mound Builder mystery. You can see the tool marks. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 36. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're talking about Ken's not vacation, where he did research so that the IRS won't sue him. We're going to listen to what he says about his discoveries with the Davenport tablets, and what he discovered with the Kensington runestone, along with other stones that Ken's looked at over the years. Get ready to think critically. You will see our staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am back with my co-host Ken, who just got back from vacation. Or as nice. we are calling it, a research trip. Yes, I object strenuously, Sarah, <laughs> to your use of the term vacation to to describe my research trip. And I want any anybody from the IRS who is listening to this podcast <laughs> that make sure that you write down that I deny emphatically that this was a vacation, I, I or that I had a good time. He it, says, it, I, he says I, time. Kenneth Fetter did not, so, Fetter yes, did not yes. have a vacation. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Um, but you know, it, it's it's a great thing, you know, great part of the job, right? Being a college prof especially a college prof who does research in multiple places is that you get, you get to go to visit these places and everybody in the world says, Oh, you're going on vacation. They go, no, damn it. I'm, I'm doing research. <laughs> but the funniest, the funniest version of that was, it was several years ago. I was talking to my students and it was around spring break and I was going to Ohio to do like a grand mound tour and meet up with Brad Lepper and see some of the, the mounds out there. And so all these college kids, they're going to like Virginia Beach and Fort Lauderdale for spring break. And so they're all saying, well, hey, Dr. Fader, so where are you going for spring break? And I said, Ohio. <laughs> and they all looked crestfallen for me. And they go, oh, well, you have to go there. You got like relatives there. I said, no, nice. man, I'm going to go see archaeological mound sites. And they just kind of looked at me like I was nuts and, and walked away because they were going to the beach. They, they were um, just realizing how boring maturity becomes, though. They're just no, like, damn, I can't go no. on vacation anymore. No, no, uh-uh. No spring but, break. Uh, yeah. But actually, this I, I am on sabbatical this semester, so I'm not going in and teaching the little darlings um, for this And, this and for people semester. who don't know what sabbatical means, it just means longer vacation. Yes, it's right. It's, it's, <laughs> what, it's, I'm not supposed to say that it's this scam that us profs have worked out where we get <laughs> but, to take off time. But I mean, the fact of the matter is really and for true. I'm busy and doing a lot of work that's all going to be part of research. It's all part of a research project and all part of what I teach, but it's a really sweet opportunity to kind of step away from the day-to-day -day grind of going and teaching and grading tests and serving on committees and just focusing on the research. So right. it's, it's pretty sweet. And, and listen, I understand people who kind of resent that and think it's a scam. It's not, but I get it. You know, we, we have, this, this, we're, we're privileged 
in the academy I, to have this opportunity. Hey, um, I took a sabbatical from my job when I was working for the state, and I went and dug actually in southern Indiana for an archaeological. Right. Uh, so yeah, you can take a sabbatical anywhere you want. But Ken, where did you my, go? Well, you see, this is the deal. My sabbatical has actually involved several trips. And the theme of it is I'm looking at um, archaeological sites and artifacts, most of which were dis discovered, and I'm going to put those in scare quotes, in the, uh, the 19th century through the beginning of the 20th century. There are some outliers a little earlier and a little later than that. Um, but these are archaeological sites or artifacts that the majority of the archaeological community consider to be fraudulent, hoaxes. And all of the ones that I've been looking at have written, incised, etched messages in some European or Asian alphabet. So in other words, we, earlier on in the podcast, many podcasts ago, we had Jeff Gill and Brad Lemper talk about the Newark Holy Stones. Right. Well, in my sabbatical, um, I'm looking at other artifacts, some actually still in situ, um, in place where these these were ostensibly discovered, um, that are all over the country that have written messages, and they may be in. Remember, with the New Holy Stones, we were talking about Hebrew found in a mound that was supposedly two thousand years old, thereby um, lending support to the hypothesis that the lost tribes of Israel or some group of of Israelites made it to the new world in antiquity and somehow interacted with native Americans. Maybe they built mounds, they buried their dead or whatever. <clears throat> so it may be Hebrew, it may be Phoenician, it may be hieroglyphs, or it may be some bizarre and absolutely indecipherable series of, of, um, of letters or hieroglyphs found all across the country that were often pointed to as evidence that either Native Americans really were Egyptians or Israelites or Phoenicians, or that those people, people from Israel, people from Egypt, people from the British Isles, people from wherever, made it to the New World in antiquity and interacted with an already resident group of Native Americans or Indians and left behind physical evidence of that. And the physical evidence in the cases that I'm looking at, they are ex almost exclusively written messages you know kilroy was here graffiti <laughs> tags left behind by these by these travelers and in the the latest trip the one that I, that i just returned from um i actually saw two of the most famous um one two two sites that are the most famous they're multiple artifacts the first are the davenport tablets and we'll talk more about this in, in particular. I, I, let me, let me, I'll, I'll step back after I talk about where I went this past um, week and talk about the, the project in general, but then I'll focus on these two. The Davenport tablets, which were found in Davenport, Iowa in the 1870s, 1877, I think it was, found in a mound with, and there are images, there are pieces of slate and images that clearly do not appear to be Native American. It's not the style of, of, of Native American iconography. Um, there appear to be written, written statement on one of them, um, images that in fact look like things from old world alphabets. Um, so those are the Davenport tablets and there are, are two tablets. One of them actually has message on both sides. We talk about the three messages. Um, so I got to see those at a wonderful museum, the Putnam Museum 
in Davenport. If you're in that area, Davenport is pretty close to the border with, uh, what is it, Wisconsin? Um, I don't even know. No, Illinois. Illinois, Wisconsin. It's, it's all kind of the same. It's all a blur to me yeah. for driving so much. Um, it's a wonderful Are, are you saying those states all look alike? No, no, no. They're really close together <laughs> and, they, and they look alike. Yes, they absolutely look alike. <laughs> The, the deal is, I, having done a lot of travel uh, as in my 50 Sites project, um, that, that, that's my obligatory reference to the book that's coming out sometime that everybody should buy for Christmas and buy multiple <laughs> copies, uh, absolutely. Uh, but my 50, 50 Sites project and now in this epigraphy, which is the word used for these written messages, um, that project, I travel around a lot. And listen, I love the people of the Upper Midwest. They're wonderful and sweet, and everybody was incredibly helpful. And it was—it's great. But you know, you drive there, and you—you you drive there for four hours, and you look out your window, and you go, "Have we actually moved?" Because this looks exactly like what we yeah. were it's driving through four hours ago. It's rolling hills, a lot of farmland. It's and th this time of year, nothing's green, so it's all kind of brown. Um, it's different from driving, in, you know, through Sedona in Arizona, where you have these amazing red rock ca caverns and mountains, and and it, that's that's gorgeous. It's very different in the Upper Midwest. But I saw the, the Davenport tablets, which are really very very interesting. I'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. And then drove, and it's kind of a long haul to Alexandria, Minnesota. We are maybe at this point the most famous of the epigraphic artifacts um, is housed, and that's the Kensington Rune Stone. Dun, um, dun, fa dun. Yeah, found in Kensington, um, but being displayed, and more about that in a little bit, in Alexandria. It's about 15 miles away. Um, so I got to see that, um, which, and that's in 1898, 1898, I think is when the, the Kensington Rune Stone was discovered, and again, in scare quotes, and it's been the topic of a lot of controversy. But actually, both Kensington more than Davenport still at this point, although both have generated a lot of controversy um, ever since their discovery. Um, the Kensington runestone is, and you can probably tell because they're runes, is that this is ostensibly a Norse artifact, an artifact with a written message on it um, that dates to it's uh, the 14th century. AD. So after the Newfoundland site, after Lonzo Meadows, we know that there are Norse living in, interacting with Native people in eastern Canada. This is obviously far to the west, um, and it's uh, three and a half centuries after the settlement at, um, at Lonzo Meadow. Uh, but that they, the idea here is that the Norse actually traveled up, I guess, the St. Lawrence River into the Great Lakes, portaged a bunch, of, a bunch ended up in this spot in the middle of Minnesota and left behind this message and then went their merry way. And that's the, the, the Kensington runestone is one that's gotten a lot of, of, of recent um, ink because of Scott Walter and his show America on earth. I know Scott's one of your favorite people. I love Sarah, Scott. And, I uh, love and him. He's, he is. And some of his work is, is in fact highlighted at the museum, the Kensington really? museum. Yeah. Oh yeah. We'll talk. Uh, yes. We will talk more about that. In, in a little bit. So so those I, those are the two that I've been to over the past week. Now, over the course of my sabbatical, um, I think there are like 10 of these sites altogether that I've actually gone to. Um, 
and just a brief listing of those, and then maybe we'll break and then we'll go on to the specifics here. But I've been to the, just to let people know, this was in fact um, a very common kind of discovery, especially in the mid to late 19th and early 20th centuries. And there's, right. I think there's an explanation for why, well, how come they, How come you professional archeologists are digging tons of testaments? How come you're not finding these things anymore? Um, well, <laughs> Cause no one's I, making them. Yeah, well, they, that, that's, that's kind of a, a gentle way of putting it, Sarah. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the bottom line here is understand that there are, I'll only go through them. There's the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone. This is in New Mexico, um, west of the town of Los Lunas, maybe like 20, 20 miles, something like that. Um, and which is about, and Los Lunas is about 45 minutes from Albuquerque. So everybody knows where Albuquerque is. It's south of Albuquerque and then to Los Lunas. Then you hang a left or hang a right and you head off to what is effectively the city dump for Los <laughs> Lunas, which wow. is somehow appropriate. And then it's a nice little hike in the mountains, and you find this stone that has, just like the, the, the Newark Holy Stones, it's the Ten Commandments written on a block of basalt in Hebrew. Now, that one's actually pretty recent, isn't it? Yeah, More recent well, than the others. Here's the deal about that. You and I know it's recent, but if you read about folks who are supportive of its authenticity, they're not convinced of that. The, the earliest historical reference to the existence of the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone is 1933. So we're still going to call it early 20th century. In some of the stories that are told about that, about that discovery in 1933, um, the idea here is that some old guy brought an archaeologist out to it, and he told the archaeologist, this is in 33, he told the archaeologist, well, I remember seeing this as a boy, and that dates it back to sometime between you know, the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. So the Los Lunas wow. Stone conceivably is was discovered in the 19th century, maybe more like, at least in terms of the actual evidence that we have, the eyewitness account of it, um, we're looking at 1933. Um, right. I, I think I've mentioned the fact of the, that I, uh, I visited the Heavener Rune Stone, which is in Oklahoma. One of the interesting things about these runestones is that these Vikings, they're a coastal people, they're a maritime people. Right. Um, they got these boats. <laughs> what in the hell are they doing in Oklahoma and Minnesota? And I guess the argument is, well, you see, they traveled up the rivers and they, I guess, portaged in some cases and then wandered around. And they certainly did go um, upriver in a number of cases in Europe and so it's not inconceivable that they would have uh, traveled further inland than just uh, along the coast. But some of the, the, the two areas, Kensington, the Kensington Runestone and the Heavener Runestone, seem really unlikely that, 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 that if the Norse, in fact, traveled west of northeastern Canada, that Oklahoma and, and Minnesota don't, do not seem to be the most obvious places for them to, to make landfall. Well, and the other funny part about that is, you know, the whole going up the river thing. People just always throw that out there. Oh, they went up the river. When you look at the route that they would have had to have taken to get close to wherever they supposedly landed right. and trekked within to the land that way, those aren't really boating rivers. Like, there, yeah. there's parts of it where you can't get through or else we'd be shipping on them. 
if you if you're if you're doing this boat ride thing, though the places, the rivers that are proposed as the the avenues or the by which the the, the Norse entered into the heartland, um, those are not ones that if I were the captain of a Viking vessel, I would probably have said no. Screw this. Let's find a bigger river because yeah, they're right. not really navigable. No. Um, but be that as it may, um, so there's <laughs> so there's the oh, and also crack cave, which lends itself to the obvious argument that well, to believe any of that stuff, you have to be on crack. But that's <laughs> but I'm not gonna I am not gonna stoop to that. I will. Is that part of the in. Turkey Turkey Run or Turkey Canyon grouping? Painted Canyon ah. in southeastern Colorado, which has lovely, lovely rock art. Some beautiful, some pretty cool petroglyphs and some really, really nice uh, pictographs of a, a sort that I've never seen. And probably because it's just, you know, I'm used to the most of the rock art that I've seen is down there in New Mexico, Arizona and Utah. Um, and stylistically, it's very different from the stuff in southeastern Colorado. But so in Crack Cave, there's supposed to be Celtic or Ogum, which is a, uh, a writing system that I think it's around about, it's after the, you know, the, the comedy era begins. And it's mostly in <laughs> Ireland. And it's straight line, straight kind of horizontal line or a vertical line with then perpendicular lines coming off of it. Um, and as you know, Sarah, there are lots and lots of of way of tallyings that Native Americans did that that you could fool yourself into thinking, well, that's Ogum because, well, it's a line with a bunch of perpendicular lines off if you, of it. If you didn't know anything about Ogum, yes. Yeah, exactly. Which is Ogum is very case. distinct. Actual Ogum is very distinct. Uh, yeah, and but it's it, it's certainly the. I'm, I'm glad I went to the what is it, picture picture canyon. Um, in Colorado, because it's really quite—it was quite lovely. Um, I have seen what else have I seen? Oh, the um, Grave Creek Mound, which is in Virginia or West Virginia. I think it's West Virginia, which is a beautiful burial mound. It's a sixty-plus foot tall, um, I think, Adena burial mound. And during its excavation, again, nineteenth century, uh, a tablet was found inside the mound with some bizarre scratches. In, in this case nobody's exactly sure what language it's supposed to be. I mean, this is the case of the Kensington runestone and the Heavener runestone. All right, those are Viking runes. If, if, if they're fake, somebody at least had a, a, a template on which they made these stones. But the, um, the Grand Creek stone is just like I, somebody was, was high and scratching on a pebble because it's, it is of no known language. The interesting thing, I may have mentioned this before in, in a previous podcast, the Grave Creek tablet, it's, it's on display in the, there's a wonderful museum associated with the, the, um, the Grave Creek Mound, a very nice historical museum, and, there's a, and it's dedicated, as part of it's dedicated to the mound itself. And there is a display where they show you a replica of the Grave Creek tablet because the original has disappeared. Oh, there, are well, photographs, there are photographs of it, and nobody's sure what the hell happened to it, and maybe it ended up being sold to some collector in England, nobody's sure. But the photographs we have of it allowed for a, an accurate replica to be made. But there in the display, there are about at least half a dozen translations right. of, the, of the Great Greek Tablet. And it's not that they are slightly different. It's not that, you know, a, a name here or a word here has changed. They are utterly and totally 
completely different. And I, I was just reading a, an, an article written by one of the, the folks at the, the um, Davenport Academy. This was written after the discovery of the tablet. So this is late 19th century. And he's trying to compare the Davenport tablet with other epigraphic artifacts found in North America. And he talks about the Great Creek tablet. And it's, it's wonderful. 19th century writing is wonderful because they're sort of, they're very concise. And you never know, are they trying to be funny or is it serious? Because <laughs> this guy, the way this guy writes it is, well, the fact that there are several different interpretations of what the Grave Creek tablet means, several completely and utterly different translations, the guy says, is, I admit, rather embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit, yeah, it's embarrassing. Um, so there's, there's that. Um, okay. But... We have to go to break real quick, and oh. then you can wrap up. And then I want you to tell me about what you saw when you went to Davenport and to Kensington. Absolutely. All right. Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks. He destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. And we are back. Ken, tell us about the Davenport tablets. Yeah. It was or what it was you really, saw. It was really cool what I saw. First of all, um, I think I said before, the, the Putnam Museum in Davenport, Iowa was a really nice museum, science museum. They had this big um, uh, Egyptian exhibit there, in fact, a, a traveling exhibit with replicas of the stuff from King Tut's tomb. But they nice. also have their own Egyptian um, exhibit, their, their uh, permanent exhibit, stuff that was donated by folks who live in the area years and years ago. And a really nice exhibit about the, um, the ecology of the area, the history of the area, and lots this is of stuff. in Iowa? Yeah, and lots of stuff devoted to Native Americans. It was really very cool. And in the part of the of the museum that's devoted to with lots of dioramas, really well done, um, there is a panel, uh, you know, a, a, a display case on the wall devoted to the Davenport tablet. So what I, so what, there are one, two, three, I think it's five artifacts that are on display altogether. Um, two of them are effigy pipes, Sarah. Now, okay. effigy pipes are pretty cool. They're, yeah. you know, effigy pipes are, there are effigy pipes there. Effigy in the sense that they are, they are, the bowl of the pipe is carved into the shape of usually an animal. So I've seen authentic Hopewell effigy pipes that look like ravens, uh, coyotes. Uh, the frogs are my favorite. Frogs are beautiful, geese. Are you ready for what these effigy pipes are, Sarah? Sure. Elephants. Huh. So the deal here is, and they're both fraudulent. Okay. They're clearly <laughs> fake. And well, the yeah. deal here is, the, what they were, the point of making fake pipes that look like elephants was that these things date to when elephants roamed the Midwest. Which so in didn't. other words, but but nevertheless, the argument, so the, the and woolly mammoths are kind of the, the the stereotype of those animals are ice age animals, and so these critters were made to look like elephants, uh, almost certainly to try to convince people that these were being found in mounds and that the mounds dated to a very ancient period. 
there at some point I have to find the original reference, but there actually was a suggestion that the mounds were so large the people who built them must have had domesticated animals, and those domesticated animals may have been mammoths or mastodons. That that's how weird this gets. In so we have those, now those two pipes were not found in at Cook's Farm, which is where the inscribed tablets were found. But okay. the deal here is that the two pipes, one of the pipes was found by Jacob Gass, G-A-S-S, and he's the main man. He's the Charles Dawson in all of this. <laughs> Charles Dawson's the guy from Piltdown who That's was, mean. In, was involved in all of uh, in the Piltdown discovery, but we're never quite sure was he alone in it? Was right. he just was he just a dupe, or was he behind it all together? Um, so Jacob gets found one of them, and I, it, either it was his brother or some other member of the academy found the other, um, and it, they're clearly fake. Jacob Gass is a German, he's a reverend, and he's German, and he has recently relocated to Iowa. And from what I understand now, most of what I know about the Davenport tablets was, was uh, comes from the book, The Davenport Conspiracy Revisited by Marshall McCusick. And though that book's still around, go and find it. It's a wonderful book. McCusick was an Iowa State archaeologist, a real deal archaeologist. And the, the Davenport story bothered the hell out of him, and he decided to devote a bunch of his time to kind of breaking it down and solving it. And here's what happened. Now, I'll tell you what I saw, but just to give you background, so Jacob Gass is, arrives on the scene in Iowa, and he is, becomes a member of this academy. These academies were kind of, of, of uh, common things in the Midwest, especially. Um, hey, what's this, the academy's name? The Davenport Academy. Okay, sorry. That's, that, that's the name of it, uh, because of Davenport, Iowa. Right. And what it is, is these guys, people who were members of the academy, <coughs> as other was true in other academies, they're living in basically a very rural area where most of the people in town are farmers. But these guys are doctors or lawyers or engineers or surveyors. They are more highly educated and they don't have a place to go and sit and to have elevated conversations about <laughs> history, geology and archeology span or art. The farmers have the Grange. You know, they have places where they meet where they can talk about farming. Well, right. these more educated guys who, yeah, okay, in some cases, maybe they feel that they're superior to the farmers. <laughs> they want a place where they can sit and smoke their cigars and drink their sherry and have lecturers come in and talk about geology or paleontology or history or archaeology. And that's what the Davenport Academy was. So you've got learned men in a town that's basically pretty rural where, where people do not have a lot of education. It's a place for them. It's a social meeting place. It's an educational place. It's a place where they can talk about things more than, you know, what wheat futures are going for. Right. And, and one of the things that was interesting to the folks in the Davenport Academy, as was true throughout the Midwest, was the mound builder mystery. Who built the mounds? Couldn't have been local Indians. They're simple and backward and primitive. So we're going to solve this. So the thing is, though, that a, a number of the people in the Davenport Academy had dug in burial mounds and they hadn't found very much. Gas arrives on the scene and apparently immediately gets people pissed at him because he tells them, well, if you haven't found the answer to the mound builder story, you're all just dumb because obviously the answer is here in the mounds. And I am going to, I just arrived, but I'm going to solve this. So he immediately puts people off. And then 
hits the go- a gold mine. <clears throat> there's a, a, a local farm, Cook's Farm, in which there's a burial mound, and it's going to be changing hands, and they maybe are going to plow it under, and gas gets permission to dig in the mound. And in fact, they find human burials and a lot of very interesting artifacts. So they're resent. So the, the deal here is that the other members of the command of the Academy are kind of resentful of him. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, how are we going to get this guy? How are we going right. to make a fool of him? And at least this is McCusick's opinion. He, and he, he went back and looked at diaries and looked at original sources and, and primary documents. And the impre- what he came up with was this notion that um, these guys decided to make a fool of gas. And what they did, and here's the part that, that absolutely clinches it. There are two slate tablets and really three, if you count one, that's got a message on both sides, which then was subsequently split apart because it's just slate. So they just ah. broke it along the cleavage plane. So you, get, you can, in the museum, you can see both sides of one of the tablets and the one inscribed side of the tablet that's inscribed on only one side. And I'll, t- I'll talk about that, the inscriptions in a sec. Right. Um, they're roofing tiles, Sarah. I mean, <laughs> no, but here's the deal. One of them even has the holes that the nails went through. Now, I'm not going to vouch for this, Sarah, but I want this to be true. The the roofing tiles, the slate tiles I have read actually came from the roof of the local house of prostitution. That would be amazing. There's no way to check that, but that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Uh, and so the, the idea here is that these guys were at the academy one night, and they're and they didn't drunk. even bother to knock the holes off. <laughs> no, no, they were getting drunk, and they said, <laughs> "Let's let's make a fool of that gas guy because he's a pain in the ass. He's a big mouth. He's a braggart." They climb up to the roof, they steal the tiles, <laughs> they go to the basement of the academy, and they scratch this nonsensical bullshit on two faces of one tile and one face of the other. And then they sneak out to Cook's farm. They bury the, the, the slate tablets in the mound. Gas finds them and absolutely, you know, does that victory dance that they do in the end zone. You know, look, <laughs> I have solved the mystery of the mounds. Now, here's the deal. Um, one of the tablets is called the hunting scene. And it's one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of this stuff, Sarah, is uh-huh. that. It's extremely, and this is not, this is, this is true for the Michigan relics. It's true for the Davenport tablets. It's true for the crack cave stuff. It looks very simplistic. It looks like a fourth grader did it. Right. You know, it doesn't look, if you've ever seen Egyptian hieroglyphs, if you've ever seen real Hebrew, it does, this stuff looks like somebody was like a, you know, just didn't have any skill or ability or knowledge, which is exactly what it was. So well, the, it, weren't you the one that made mention that, you know, when the Europeans went out adventuring, they, they sent their least educated yeah, and that's well, why all of the writing is such crap. Maybe, maybe that's true. Um, but it's amazing actually when you want, when you read some of the, the stuff written by folks 300 years ago, uh, sometimes it's, it's among, it's, it's so beautifully written. It's better than anything a college kid could do today. These, I mean, these folks, if they went to school, they learned how to read and write, and they learn and they read classical literature and uh, use of allusions and and metaphor and simile. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. But anyway, so the, the hunting scene is this bizarre thing. It 
it's a tree again, very childishly drawn. Yeah, with like animals kind of floating around it, and so the argument was, ah, oh, they're showing the, wow. the hunt. The other side of it is called the sacrifice scene, <clears throat> and what it looks like, what it's claimed to be, is a human sacrifice. There's smoke, and it looks like you know, like, like if you were applying to cartoon college and you drew this, this is how I'll draw smoke. They would tell you, you know, find another job because yeah. it's so badly done. Uh, this one has like almost like a rainbow across the top with a with a random assortment of things that are supposed to be letters in this in this in this rainbow. And then there's smoke and what looks like a fire underneath and people look like humans kind of it, holding hands around the fire. And the argument is that it's some kind of a, of a, a sacrifice scene. And those are both, those are two different sides of the same tablet. The other tablet has a series of concentric circles with marks inside. And maybe it's like a Zodiac. That's the one that, by the way, still has the holes from the nails that held the roofing tiles on. It sure um, does. So, my God, you know, I, I pulled I, up got, pictures, I, so I'm looking at them while you're describing them. And I've got, I, I took some photographs, and I will send those to you, Sarah, and by all means, upload them. You know, show them on the blog. Um, they are, it's, it's, they're, they're just silly looking, you know. Um, the other, the other thing that Musick found was that these guys had in their possession um, a dictionary that gave examples of letters from old world scripts and you can almost go down the, the, the all the letters that are shown there in that kind of semicircle above the human sacrifice then that each one of those shows up in this dictionary so <laughs> they knew they weren't writing anything they just went to a thing and said here are here are random letters from various scripts and they they repeated them one of the mistakes they made as as um as McCusick showed was that some of the letters are are not contemporaneous, so that you've got a letter here that's like Greek, but that but that form of Greek wasn't developed until much at, way before, way way after some of these other forms were developed. There's an ampersand, which is a modern figure that 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 doesn't date to when the mounds were being built, <laughs> so it's all kind of silly. Now the thing is. Um, Jacob Gass announces upon this discovery, he's found the, 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 this is the answer. Clearly the people who built the mounds were old world people. They came to the new world, maybe a couple thousand years ago. They left these messages in the mounds. Um, and folks, my impression is that initially there was a lot of support for this, especially locally, because even though there were you know, the guys who pulled the trick on them, they probably were steaming. Oh, damn it. He's getting famous, and now if we say, by the way, it was us, we did it, right. we're going to seem like the assholes, and so they never spoke up. Like, not um, even a deathbed confession. Well, here's the deal. There actually okay. is, a, there is a deathbed confession, and a lot of the details were, um, McCusick based his reconstruction of the scenario on the details. There's ah. a problem with the deathbed confession. This guy says, yeah, we all got drunk, 
we climbed up to the top of the local sporting house or one of the local <laughs> houses. We stole some tiles. We went in the basement. We copied from this dictionary. We plugged them in the mound, and we knew that this asshole gas, this blowhard, <laughs> that he would find and make a big deal about it. And then we would say, yeah, we're stupid. We just did a, We did this. We hoaxed this one drunken night, and you don't even know that the, it, that the thing's fake. Um, the problem is that the person who ultimately gave the deathbed confession, when you do the math, he was only a little kid uh, when the thing happened. Okay, so well. it means that, that and what, the, the notion here is that perhaps this was a story that his father told him and in his old age, he decided to, to insert himself in the story. So his confession is certainly not one that can be taken literally, right. but some of the things that were in the that were in this confession make perfect sense and seem to fit other stuff. So if we're, we're talking about convergence of evidence earlier on in the, um, in, the in, in a previous podcast, how different streams all point in the same direction, you're on pretty firm ground when you say, yep, that's what happened. Um, the streams are imperfect, and yet they all seem to lead to the same conclusion that gas was a blowhard they wanted him to 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 humiliate him um the artifacts themselves they they are wonderful to look at um people when when anybody who doesn't know the whole story looks at these the response that I, you know, i've shown the pictures the response is really people believe that and i said yes some people did the thing well, though that's is my thing. Why did they immediately assume that it had to be Europeans? Why didn't they associate these artifacts with the native tribes? Now that's a you know that's a really interesting question, Sarah. Um, and that that actually harks to you know harks back to another artifact that I've seen that I haven't talked about here tonight. Back in um, uh, Massachusetts, Dighton Rock. That's D I G H T O N. And that was found a little earlier because folks, that's the, the funny thing, if you, when you're a New Englander and you're driving past towns that were established in the 17th century, and that's old, and you go mm. to a town in the upper, in Minnesota, and it's like antiquity is 1880. And you go, 1880, I have socks that are that old in New England. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a, there are centuries difference in terms of, of the depth of, an, of antiquity. What, what, what passes for deep time in Minnesota is well wait a minute i live in a house that's built in 1840 people didn't even get to some of these towns i drove through until the very late 19th and early 20th centuries right. um, but dighton rock when dighton rock was first discovered this is in fact a rock that's covered with petroglyphs one of the common reactions and this will blow you away was that indians were not capable of scratching messages into rock ah uh, yes i that forget I, that I've actually seen now. It's, it's. I'm not supposed to say this, but I've been reviewing a book, um, not written by me, about this stuff. And this was a wonderful book. And I hope when it's published, maybe we can get him on the show um, because absolutely, we'll, the, we'll get the author on the show. But he found um, quote after quote after quote of learned gentlemen in North America who, when confronted with rock art, concluded, oh, well, those must have been made by Europeans or Africans or Asians because Indians, no, they would never take the time. They don't have the intelligence. They don't have the skill to scratch lines into rock. They really wow. said that. 
And so it, what's what's funny too is is in, in a, a site that we haven't mentioned, but it's a legitimate site, wonderful site to go see, is the Jeffers Petroglyph site, which is in Minnesota. It is a real um, wonderful petroglyph site, and um, guy Tom Sanders, who is the the director of the site, he's a uh, uh, works for the Minnesota Historical Society. He gave us a personal tour of the petroglyphs. They're amazing. The reason I bring it up, and if you're in anywhere in central Minnesota, go check out Jeffers Petroglyphs. The place opens up, I think, on Labor Day, on uh, Memorial Day. But the thing is, they actually compared the Jeffers Petroglyph site to Dighton Rock. There were people saying, well, Indians couldn't possibly have done this. And you have, um, who's the, the painter? Catlin who's painting Native Americans out in the Midwest. Right. And he saw Jeffers Petroglyphs and he saw some of these petroglyphs in Minnesota. And he actually wrote a letter to a New York newspaper saying, well, I, all this fuss about Dighton Rock and the Indians couldn't have done it. We have petroglyphs out here and we have living Indians who can translate them for you, who can tell you what they mean because their ancestors actually did it. Well, the, yeah, um, we're the ones that wrote it. Exactly. So, so, but that's that's why this is obviously um, Dighton Rock is is it was discovered much earlier, uh, but Catlin is around about what late nineteenth century. So it's around about this period. You still have people finding rock art, real rock art, and saying, "Well, no, it it can't be. There must be Hebrew in there somewhere. There must be. Oh my God! In the case of Dighton Rock in Massachusetts, they said, "Well, maybe it's Portuguese." And it proves that the, that the Miguel Corte Real, who was a real guy, a real person, <coughs> who in the early 16th century, was he was an, um, a navigator, uh, he disappeared in the Atlantic. He actually maybe made it to Massachusetts and scratched messages into a rock that already had scratches on it that maybe those were Phoenician or Egyptian. So that's it's typical, typically the case that with real petroglyphs, assigning them to somebody, it's like the mound builders. Well, the Indians couldn't build mounds. It must be somebody else. Indians couldn't make rock art. It must be somebody else. That's right. a tradition of Europeans or Asians, not of, of our, not of our Indians. They're too lazy. They're not. They don't have the skills. That was commonly the the canard, the libel. Um, so it's not surprising that when fake artifacts were found that had what appeared to be Greek letters, maybe maybe Phoenician, <laughs> maybe Hebrew, to say, oh, oh, for sure. It, apparently, they were big on diversity back then, Sarah, because they had people from every possible old world group and every possible alphabet and every possible hieroglyphic writing system shows up on the same goddamn tablet found in a, in a mound, in a burial mound in eastern Ohio. Hence why there are so many translations of it. But we have to go to break really quick. Sure. And then we can talk about Kensington. And then we're going to talk about the Kensington runestone, yes. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. And we're back in 
saying, Ken, tell us about your adventures with the Kensington Ringstar. Right. Well, just, just to bridge it, if you go and see the Putnam Museum and <clears throat> see the Davenport tablets, it's a lovely display, and they are right up front. They tell you these are important because they are famous archaeological frauds. They quote Marshall McCusick. There's no question about it. Look, folks, these things are fake. And that's cool. And it's important because they are part of American history when, when people were looking for an old world presence in the new world to somehow kind of deny the capabilities of Native Americans. So then we drive to Alexandria, Minnesota, um, which is this lovely little, you know, Scandinavian town. The, the reason you know it's a Scandinavian town is there's like this 40-foot-tall Swedish lumberjack sculpture <laughs> overlooking the town, which is a little bit disconcerting. Now, here's <laughs> just, just, just to show you the context of the Kensington Stone. Um, number one, it's in its own museum in Alexandria called the Kensington Runestone Museum. But when you walk in, you realize it's the Chamber of Commerce. So so clearly there's something about the Kensington Stone that the Chamber of Commerce feels is an important thing to tether onto, to kind of hook onto, because it's it's what makes Alexandria special or different. And you walk in, and the people there are lovely. They couldn't be nicer. Um, but very clearly, they are invested in believing that the Kensington Runestone is the real deal. And yeah. so you walk in, and you walk in, and there's a kind of not a rotunda, but a but a big room when you walk in, open the door, and there it is, in a in a, a glass cube, in a, a place of honor with dramatic lighting, and, and there it is. It's much. Here's how dumb I am. It's much smaller than I thought it was going to be. It's oh, yeah? like about three or four feet tall. And the reason I thought it was much bigger is that. I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years ago at the fine spot where Swedish immigrant Olaf Olman ostensibly discovered it, they had a replica made that's like uh -huh. 10 times bigger than the real one. So I remember seeing a photograph of a bunch of kids around this runestone that was freaking gigantic thinking, and it's well, not that's, that big. that's one, that's a hell of a runestone. Turns out that's not the runestone. So yeah, it's actually pretty small. Um, and the deal is, the runestone tells a story. It basically tells the following story. All right, so we're a bunch of Scandinavians, and we got Norwegians and Swedes, and uh, we went and fishing, and we came back, and a bunch of people, uh, uh, the place was was decimated. A bunch of our guys were killed. You know, holy crap, we're getting, we're, peace out. <laughs> 13, right. I think it's AD 1342, peace out. You know, screw you guys, we're going home. And and this stone is left there to com to commemorate or memorialize their 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 <clears throat> their presence there, and also the death of I think ten of their comrades. All around it, uh, the, there's like a nine minute video um, uh, showing doing a little bit of the history of the rune stone and the the story of its of its um, discoverer, this farmer living in Kensington. Here's another thing that I thought was hilarious that nobody ever questions. Um, the runestone is located now in this museum in Alexandria, Minnesota. It was discovered, I think it's about 15 miles away in the community that is today called Kensington. That's why it's the Kensington runestone. Right. Um, but it, at the museum, you can buy a license plate frame, you know, for the license on your car. 
that says Alexandria, Minnesota, birthplace of America. And not only is that hilarious, it's it's Kensington that should, if it's <laughs> legit, it's Kensington, not stinking Alexandria, for God's sake. But I did not buy that. Uh, by the way, in the museum's gift shop, along with T-shirts and funny-looking Viking hats, it's all it's Vikings. It's Vikings all the way down, you know. Uh, yeah. You can buy. They have two bumper stickers you can buy, Sarah. And oh. It's did you buy them? No, I didn't. It's, but it's equal <laughs> oppor <coughs> equal opportunity. There is one that has a picture of the runestone on it that says Kensington Runestone. It's real, and another one that says Kensington Runestone. It's a hoax. Oh, so, wow. And I didn't ask them, which, which one's the better seller? But I think that just about anybody going through the museum would buy the It's a Real one. Because, oh, in the, the, the video, it's kind of sad. Their, their primary argument for why Olaf Ullmann, the guy who found it, who is usually among skeptics, they point to him and say, you know what? He did this. He pulled this <laughs> off. He's just he a joker. Usually, he's usually the guilty party, yes. But here's the deal, and I did not know this. Well, the argument they give is that, well, he, he was not intelligent enough to have done it. Jeez, that happens a lot, right? They always, they always blame the hoaxer. No, Dawson couldn't have done it. He was a moron. No, oh right. my God. But whatever. But the other thing that's really sad, and you have to, the, the logic here is a little bit ba ass backwards, but they say, Oman didn't do it because after he did it, <clears throat> there was so much resentment and he, he got dumped on so much that one of his kids left the community and never spoke to his father again, and another one of his kids committed suicide. Oh no, I didn't know oh, that. But so, but so the argument therefore is that he wouldn't have pulled off a hoax that would have ended up with his kid committing suicide. I said, well, wait a minute, how would his kid have known? It doesn't make any sense. But but obviously, what they're trying to do is you know you got to feel sorry for the guy, and who knows, maybe the fact that it was a hoax and everybody kind of knew it and he got the blame for it. Maybe that broke, you know, that, that his, that both of his, that his kids were angry about that or upset about that. It led to all kinds of bad stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, that has nothing whatsoever to do with the legitimacy, the authenticity of the runestone. But then in the main section, oh, absolutely. You've got a, a running, a PowerPoint that runs, you know, that's on a loop. And a lot of it is Scott Walter stuff. It's, wow. it's, well, he's proven that the weather, the, the two arguments that are presented are the argument that Walters presents, or two of the most important ones, that number one, he has analyzed the weathering on the runestone. He loves and, to talk about that crap, but, too. But, but essentially, you, you and I know that what he did was he compared it to, like, gravestones in New England. Yeah. And on that basis said, oh, it, this thing has to be much older than Olaf Ullmann. He couldn't have done it because it's way older than that. And the other argument he gives is that there are runes on that stone that were unknown to be legitimate runes when Oman was ostensibly, when he discovered it. So he couldn't have used those runes because nobody knew those runes. And it isn't, it's only recently that we've discovered, oh my God, those are authentic runes. So in other words, there's there's a time problem there that he couldn't that Oman couldn't have done it. And that's that's the prime that's the argument that's given um, again and again in that script. And one more story before I get back to the archaeological evidence for the runestone is I actually drove the 15 miles or whatever the hell it was from Alexandria to Kensington to go to the Oman farm, which is now a it's a park. It's a municipal park. 
Okay. A, I'm not sure if it's a state park or a town park. <clears throat> his his farmhouse is still there, lovely little white farmhouse. Um, it's closed now. It, it opens up, I think, in this you know when the weather get, gets nicer and they have people actually um, there to to give you tours. So it was closed. I got a couple pictures of it. And then you dr it's nearby. You just walk this little path, and there's a a a, a, a sign. You know, a brass signs or bronze stuck into a stone saying, "This is the where Olaf Oman found the, Kens <clears throat> the Kensington runestone." Now, really cold that day. It was really windy. weren't a lot of people out and about, but I was there taking some pictures. And another car pulls up, and the guy gets out of the car, and he's a big, tall guy with blue eyes, like everybody else in Minnesota, right? He's right. probably Scandinavian, and. He comes over to me, Sarah, he's making a pilgrimage. Uh -huh. it's, no, for reals. And he's there and I see he's really emotional about it. And he turns to me, Sarah, and he goes, oh, wow, it's amazing. And he looks at me and he goes, are you Scandinavian? Nice. <laughs> said, no, dude, I, I'm not Scandinavian. Um, he goes, ah, oh, sorry, but still, this is an important place. And then he went ahead and, you know, walked around. Um, my suspicion is <laughs> the, the, the impression. Oh, and as you drive from Alexandria to Kensington, along the road, there is a, a real, um, very well-made, professionally made series of road signs that, that have a picture, a drawing of a Viking boat in full sail. And it says, you are on the Viking trail. The point here is this, the Davenport conspiracy, Davenport tablets, there's no invested community in Eastern Iowa that says we are the descendants of the people who left those tablets and we're here to defend the honor of those tablets. Because well, they happen. can't point to one group definitively exactly. like the Kensington Stone does. So th that's a, so the valuable lesson here, Sarah, is if you're going to pull off an archaeological hoax, be more focused. Right. You know, choose one ethnic group to, to, to be the... the not Native Americans. Point. No, not Native Americans. Of course not. So, Can't pick Native Americans. So the deal is with the Kensington Stone, um, you know, when you look at the, the you know, the license plate frame, that, and I mean, it's, it's, it's fun, it's funny, but there's an element of seriousness to it. Um, birthplace of America. So it's not those Indians. It's not those Italians, you know, Columbus right. and those guys. It's not those English at Plymouth. It's right here. It's a Scandinavians, God damn it, in Minnesota. And so when people go there as a pilgrimage and, you know, it's, it's worse. We're, we're, a, uh, we're an ethnic group proud of this possibility that our ancestors were here first. And that's what the Kensington runestone is, is all about. The scary part is that in the museum, Sarah, there's a diorama, very like, you know, they, they must've gotten like, like mannequins from the local department store and dress them up in old looking clothes. And there's a painting. And when you look at them, my God, it's revenge of the blondes. It's these are the Scandinavians <laughs> who are here. And it's, they are the whitest looking people you've ever seen. And, you know, with beautiful little kids with blonde hair. And of course the women all have amazing blonde hair in, in the, both in the diorama and in the, um, the painting. The dad, we'll give you, we'll give the dad, give you the dad. He's Scandinavian looking, but he's got dark hair, so that's okay. But apparently, blonde hair among those Scandinavians is uh, is a, a dominant trait because the kids are all blonde as blonde can be. 
And I even think... though genetically it is not. <coughs> well, you know, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's not really the dad. Oh my God, that would be Ooh. horrible. The mailman's children. But but the deal is, and I, I don't think I'm reading too much into it. It is this <laughs> kind of this ethnic pride. It's, yeah. You know, we we really white people. You know, maybe the Indians were here first. All right, we'll give you that. But you know, damn it, we we Scandinavians. It, it's not coincidental that these <laughs> kinds of artifacts are are most successful when there is a local group invested in their being uh, in their authenticity, right? Because right. of course, if you're hey, listen, if I'm Scandinavian in Minnesota, I would think it's pretty damn cool if that Kensington runestone was real. <clears throat> because it shows that we have in incredibly deep roots here, that our my ancestors didn't arrive in the 1870s or 1880s. Um, they arrived much further, much longer ago than that, that you I know, think the 14th lot, century. I think a lot of people try to use that as some kind of like retroactive claim of yeah, which is authenticity on an area. And it's just kind of like, it's it, it still irritates me, but... You know, I'm sure that's a conversation for another time, but it's still an irritating thing that people do. Well, but and then ultimately, you know what? I, you know, if you want to give the Scandinavians the Kensington Runestone, that's cool. Native Americans beat them there, even yeah, if it's 13. Native Americans were still there before the, the... 10, 12, 15,000 years before Right, that. So, exactly. <clears throat> but it's okay, after the Indians, we were here first. The thing <laughs> about the, the Kensington Runestone, and if you go online, if anybody here listens to the podcast, you go online, you'll see lots of arguments about the runic writing, about the weathering on the stone, a whole bunch of other stuff. That's all well and good. I am not an epigrapher. I am not a linguist. I'm not a geologist. But here's what I know as an archaeologist. If a whole bunch of Scandinavians exactly. were hanging out in Minnesota long enough to sit yep. there and carve in a very hard sandstone this message, there would be standard pedestrian archaeological evidence for that hey you know if they were there where are their fireplaces where are the stone where are the artifacts that they lost or broke or discarded uh, the 10 people who ostensibly were killed by native americans yeah, where spot. are these people where are their bones where they bury them um, or if they now, burned them in a pyre because that's the other thing i've heard there's they didn't bury them they burned them that, that still shows up in the record. So yeah. where are the funeral pyres? I mean, I, Alice Kehoe wrote a book on the Kensington Runestone. Um, and Alice is pro-authenticity. And, you know, Alice is an, a, a trained anthropologist, archaeologist. I have enormous respect for Alice. Um, I think she's wrong about this. I well, I think she's backed off of her support of the Kensington Runestone. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen that. So I'm, I'm going to let Alice speak for herself on that. But okay. Alice herself, very, because she's a scientist, says, hey, you know what, guys? They have done archaeological surveys in and around the runestone find spot and in the general area. So archaeologists have dug a bunch of test pits, and they have not found a single <clears throat> artifact, a single piece of material culture that would lend support to the authenticity of the Kensington runestone. So, you know, Scott Walter can go on and on and on about the individual runes and about the weathering, but he doesn't have an answer to this question. Where's the stuff? Yeah. And if you don't have the stuff, then as of course, as an archaeologist, that's the gold standard, artifacts. The reason archaeologists 
uh, laud the work of the Ingstads at Lonzo Meadow is because they exactly found the stuff, the material evidence that supported the sagas were accepted, largely accepted by historians, but you get scientific archaeologists saying, well, that's, those are good stories about Vinland and about, about the Vikings coming here. And it all makes sense. But without the smoking gun, meaning the ring-headed bronze pin and the iron boat rivets and the iron smithy and the Viking boots and the house remains, you don't. You, all you have is an interesting story, uh, 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 maybe a compelling hypothesis, but you don't have proof. That's exactly what we have at the Kensington Runestone. There's a lot of there are a lot of reasons to believe the thing is a fake. Forget my reasons for believing it's a fake. Forget my my just so stories. But forget the other, forget those who support pro authenticity. Forget they're just so stories too. Find a find the Viking encampment for the guys who obviously were traveling throughout Minnesota. Find one goddamn encampment, and now we'll say, hey, you know what? That lends greater credence to the claim that the Viking, that the Kensington Runestone is legit. But without that, I'm sorry, you know, we just there 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 just isn't any material support for that claim. Yeah, no. Yeah. And the stories around it are just very suspect as well. I mean, it's the whole discovery story, and there is another deathbed confession there, and yeah, yeah. that one's a lot more reliable than the last one. It's just, I will never say that the Kensington Runestone is an authentic artifact. So, and well, I don't I, think there's I anything it. there. And that's, you know, Sarah, as somebody who does, a, you do a lot of CRM work, right? So I do. You, in your work, dig a, dig a whole, uh, I think the technical term is you do a whole shit ton of test pits. <laughs> and archaeologists all over America, I mean, it's it's an interesting, let me, we're, I think we're heading towards the end here. And here's the general thing. The, these artifacts, these epigraphic artifacts, these artifacts with old world writing, old world script, all, almost all of them are discovered in the middle to late 19th, early 20th centuries, where there was a right. lot of controversy about who are right. the Indians, where they come from, who built the mounds, and that as soon as the field becomes professionalized, as soon as archaeologists start getting a background in geology, in stratigraphy, in history, in anthropology, right. and start getting a lot of... and To go out and dig, you have to have some experience, and you dig with a mentor. And by the time you're, you're doing your own field work, you know what you are doing. It's an interesting point to make that once that happens, nobody finds these artifacts. Exactly. And you have two, there are two possible explanations. If you are conspiratorially minded, it's we are still finding them, but we're hiding them. We're, we're, we're keeping it a secret. Me and Sarah, we find this shit all the time. We're up to our asses in Viking runestones and Phoenician and hieroglyphs. But I know some, I'm running out of space. But I, for, some, yeah, for some perverse reason, we just we don't think you could handle the truth, so we don't tell you. So that that is one possible. That's one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is they're not being found because they don't exist, and because people realize archaeologists today they're probably too good at figuring out disturbance in soil and um, too good at measuring weathering, and that you know they couldn't be fooled. And besides which. It's not like a big issue anymore. Who built the mounds? Who are the Indians? We know all that stuff. Archaeological evidence, genetic evidence, um, um, historical evidence, ecological evidence, epidemiological evidence all shows, hey, you know what? They came from Asia. 
they built the mounds at some point after that. And so... Well, so and the other important thing is that the field was very young back then. Oh, yeah. And anybody could have been, like you were saying, anybody could have been an archaeologist. You know, and just was not an archaeologist. He was a reverend who wanted who dug, who dug holes. Right, but it, it was a thing that, like, a lot of wealthy people would just declare themselves antiquarians and go off and start digging holes. Oh, and sure. it was it was accepted. You know, oh, you're an educated person. Ah, well, you're. <gasps> duly qualified to go dig holes and like you said it wasn't until the field started professionalizing and started becoming where people started saying you know maybe we should know what we're doing before we go digging holes you should be able to recognize a stratigraphic exactly sequence. you might you might keep things in situ and see what the associations are you well, know, yeah you and, and organic material it's and it you know thank Thanks to the you know early field, the the early development of the field. I mean that's how we learned what we needed to know. And there were a lot of really important, not exactly archaeological discoveries, but um, field discoveries, like things that helped build the field into what it is today. That were made during that time. You know, technology and and technique became a thing. Um, sure. But it was it the reason why you see that rash of fake artifacts that all pop up in that exact same time span is because it was easy to do we didn't have all the answers yet and <laughs> but the other important thing is is every time one of these things pop up there was a huge skeptical response to each one of these so it's not like they were always accepted outright there was always somebody who was willing to say no, this isn't right, this is a fake. Yeah, and then and science eventually corrected itself. But what's interesting, and, and there's a good, there's a good um, uh, sociological, anthropological study of this, it, it's a, it's a, there's a real us and them undercurrent here. Yes. So it's us local people, yes. we found this cool stuff. You pointy-headed Easterners at like yeah. Harvard, you, are, you say they're fake. Well, it's us against them. We right. are, here we are, we're Scandinavian. We're... We're Irish, Scottish, we're Celts. And you English, the assumption is that the, the scientists back East are all from an English heritage. And you're telling us that this is fake, that we don't know what we're talking about. Right. You are, you're scientists. We are simple people. We don't know what we're doing. So there's that us, them. So that, yeah, you've got people like Cyrus Thomas at the Smithsonian um, saying, oh, no, well, no, the Denver tablets, these are clumsy fakes. Of course they are. And yeah. the people are, people then respond to that in resenting that this outsider is trying to impose his orthodox view on us when we have the answer and he doesn't. But just to get back, uh, I, a few years ago, I did a survey only in this local area, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and I asked um, uh, historical the historical commissions and and uh, various archaeology various groups who fund archaeology. How many test pits are dug in your state in a given year? And oh, by yeah. the time the numbers are in the tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, even for a small area over the course of say ten years. The bottom line here is archaeologists are digging a whole lot of holes, and we are sifting a whole lot of dirt. If there was an undercurrent in North America of a, a Norse presence south of Canada, a Celtic presence, a Phoenician presence, an Egyptian presence, a lost tribes of Israel presence here, we would be we, we would we would be up to our asses in these artifacts. We'd be finding them all the time. So again, the, the 
you got well the three options. One is that we're so stupid that we pick up an ancient uh, Hebrew tablet in in a site that that's three thousand years old. We don't know what we're looking at, so we throw it away. That's not going to happen. We know what it is, but we we're hiding the truth. The other possibility is we don't find those things because they don't exist. They, they don't they, exist. They, they, they can be traced to a particular period of time, an interesting period of time, that's rife with speculation about who the Indians are and who built the mounds. And whoever finds the answers to those questions is going to get famous, be able to write a book, maybe make some money off of the deal. That's why it happened then. It doesn't happen now. Because it can't happen now. And exactly. to, to make your point, to, to, to redouble on your point, it, you know, maybe people look at something like the Kensington Stone and say, that's hard. Or even the, 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 the Davenport tablets, wow, that would have taken a lot of time to do. Let me tell you something. Faking a, a <laughs> tablet with some writing on it <clears throat> is at least doable. Faking an entire archaeological assemblage, an entire archaeological component of a site, and faking that so that an archaeologist would find it, go, my gosh, we have an ancient Phoenician village here in Iowa is well nigh impossible. Right. That's why we don't, that's why we find epigraphic stuff because you know what? You got a dictionary, a piece of slate, and a, and a couple of hand tools. You can make something that apparently can fool people. But right. reproducing a site <clears throat> with the remnants of houses, the remnants of fireplaces, the remnants of, 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 of um, tool making features, I, I, man, you have to be a genius to be able to do that. And I don't As, see that happening. Especially with the technology that we have at our disposal oh, these days ab- and absolutely. the experience that so many archaeologists have. Yep, um, it's, absolutely. You're just not going to pull that off. But, Ken, thank you very much. And I'm glad that you had a good research trip that research wasn't a trip. vacation. Research trip. It was, it was Kenny's excellent adventure in the upper research Midwest. Research trip. At a great time. And again, I thank all the, the folks. Very, again, the people at the Kensington Runestone Museum couldn't have been nicer. Um, the uh, Tom Tom uh, Sanders at the Jeffers Petrical site again, couldn't be nicer. So people helped me out a lot. I, of course, I didn't advertise the fact that I thought the Runestone was was a hoax. But you know what? Oh, they but they'll know okay. now, Ken. Well, they'll I mean, you know, know now. I really think they would have been okay with it because they Probably. just think this is really interesting and. I can believe whatever I want. Um, they've got Scott Walter, so they're golden. Oh, Scott Walter. All right. Thanks a lot, Sarah. This was great fun, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, man. Talk to you later. Rain your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, Go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. Dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs.
This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.